song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. And this week, we are going to explain how New Japan Pro Wrestling explains wrestling, which is a mouthful, but it's also an exciting episode, much better than last week's episode on fake news, where I just cried for like a half an hour at my desk. That was that was good. Yeah, I would say that uh, this episode has the potential to be as uh, exciting as its title is cumbersome. Uh, Unlike last week with a very simple, you know, straightforward, uh, easy to say topic, but very depressing, sad content. Get to talk about Vader again, which is, I, this, uh, he was the subject of one of my favorite episodes of the show, uh, How Big Van Vader Explains Wrestling. He was, when I think of New Japan up until recently, what I thought of as New Japan, like that was Japanese style wrestling in America to me and I think to most people I think that's fair to say right yeah definitely especially I mean in the kind of like early to mid 90s I mean when Vader first showed up in WCW like that was the explanation right is you know this guy has has been on a tear in Japan and we don't really know anything else about him but here he is feast your eyes so yeah I think for most of us who grew up primarily watching American wrestling in the 90s we were kind of told that Japanese wrestling was kind of what Vader did and it uh, did not disappoint. <laughs> like when you actually watch, because if you don't have New Japan World, I strongly suggest you get it if you're listening to this show. It's actually cheaper than the WWE Network. And although it's kind of hard to navigate, you can find a lot of stuff and it's pretty good in terms of search. In particular, the ones I love the most are the big, bad, and dangerous run he had with Bam Bam Bigelow. We alluded to that a little bit in the Vader episode. That was kind of towards the, you know, towards the kind of beginning of the end of his New Japan run. And, you know, it was kind of a time where maybe his his star was starting to diminish, at least for kind of the first time, as a single star. But definitely, I mean, they were a super physical, super imposing tag team. Like, if you showed... Uh, Let's say you had, you know, a uh, you were you were trying to get somebody to fight them, and you just, you know, showed them a picture of those two guys. I don't think anybody would accept that challenge. They've really got that mystique. Just looking at them, they're incredibly scary. Almost four hundred pounds each. I think they were both billed over four hundred pounds at the time. What's crazy is how athletic they both are. Bam Bam, in particular, was doing just acrobatic stuff that guys now still don't, aren't able to do. Like he, Vader is unique in a different you could see someone being close to vader and i think a kevin owens is smaller but is proportionately athletic someone like him where with bam bam he was as athletic as kevin owens was and and acrobatic in the way that kevin owens is and he was 150 pounds heavier somewhere in that general vicinity like these are enormous guys and they are destroying people the gaijins to end all gaijins it feels like in terms of what they represented and the way that they got other teams especially japanese teams over is incredible you watch them work with the smaller japanese guys at the time they make those guys look like a million bucks in a 15 minute squash match where they don't get any offense yeah i think their matches uh, against the japanese talent are really a great example of like what guys mean when they say giving someone something to sell (laughs) uh like being you know just stiff enough with them and just uh, on top of them enough that just the fact that they're in there taking the punishment is impressive to the audience and you know you know, the, the, there's this kind of presupposition, especially now, that when you see a quote-unquote squash match or like an 80-20 style match, that it's really all about that person with the 80%. And generally, it mostly is. But I think the very best, I mean, we talked about this with Arn and Tully in the past, but I think Vader and Bam Bam are a great example of that, of, you know, giving someone something to sell and the story becomes about their ordeal and their perseverance. And we talked about this in the, uh, the Vader episode as well, that sort of the the kind of main philosophy of Japanese wrestling between like 70 and I don't know, the mid nineties, basically uh, NWO period was, you know, that you, you had the big Americans who put the Japanese through ordeals. And like, we don't have to explain why historically that's a relevant, relevant narrative, but it definitely, you know, the, Vader and Bam Bam were among the best ever pulling that off up there with, you know, Brody and Hanson and Scott Norton and Dr. Death and Gary Albright, you know, those guys. Yeah, I love Scott. (laughs) He's just, he's the perfect example of a guy that really worked in the New Japan system that didn't necessarily, and I think he has great matches. He has a random match with Ice Train uh, at one of the Hog Wild pay-per-views that is fantastic because it's one of the few times he actually works that just bad 
bad dude style. I don't know how else to describe it where he's just beating the crap out of someone. Like Scott Norton in Japan is like is unreal good, especially relative to the work that they gave him in the States. Yeah, definitely. I think in WCW, you always kind of saw a Scott Norton who knew that he was more or less in the middle of the card and more or less in the middle of the pay scale. And he kind of handled himself accordingly. But a lot of those guys, I mean, you could say the same thing about Hanson, you know, in WCW with that run against Luger and stuff. And with the um, uh, Dutch Mantel and the other guys trying to find him, remember that skit, you know what I'm talking about? But, but, but I think that we saw a lot of that with those great Japanese talents coming especially to WCW and either holding back so as not to step on toes or just knowing that they couldn't be the kind of stiff, straightforward monsters that they had, be in, had been in Japan. So I think that's definitely a, an accurate observation that a lot of these guys, whether it's Norton or even Vader himself, you know, who really made their bones in New Japan and came to the U.S., they always kind of knew in the back of their head that that style that had gotten them so over in New Japan just wasn't going to work in the U.S. because the New Japan style was was supposed to be real. I mean, Antonio Inoki, like in the 70s, claimed to be the world's greatest fighter. Like he basically, I don't want to say, he gets a little too much credit these days, I would say, for quote-unquote inventing MMA. But I mean, it, it, he presented pro wrestling, especially, you know, the New Japan style pro wrestling as being about... The, you know, he, he, Inoki, as the embodiment of, the, of Bushido, of the Japanese fighting spirit, of the, you know, refusal to die attitude. And in that way, you not only could get away with a lot physically, you needed to do a lot physically. I mean, you even see it today with like Kazuchika Okada is a great example of, you know, he has to go through the long ordeal in every single match and it really works but in the u.s where the matches are typically shorter and less physical you definitely saw a lot of those guys dialing back you know they, they didn't have that it's like when vader went out that first night with anoki like anoki gave him carte blanche like get over do what you need to do I, you know you can apologize to me later kind of thing and, and and i think when you remove a lot of those great gaijin wrestlers from japan and bring them back to the u.s they kind of lose that confidence that comes from knowing like, hey, the style here is bring it as hard as you can. The revelatory thing about watching these matches is, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, the idea that it's really there to get the Japanese performers over. And as an American in our ethnocentrism, it's very odd to see a situation where we are considered the foreign menace. Like, obviously I've been watching wrestling enough that I've seen that, but at the same time, it's still, there's this cognitive dissonance of like, these are not that they're white, they're Americans. I'm like, what? it's weird to see, but you understand, especially watching the older stuff that it's in Japanese. This is, this is a Japanese company in a way that maybe all Japan focused more on bringing famous Americans to the show, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, all Japan really relied on promoting American dream matches. Once again, we talked about this a little bit back in the Vader episode, but, uh, you know, Baba and All Japan had great relationships with the NWA and the Funks, so they could really get kind of the top American talent, or at least the top NWA talent. And I mean, in All Japan, they would book more American versus American matches. And sometimes it would even be like an NWA guy versus an AWA guy, you know, I mean, a true dream match that you'd never see in the U.S. So they relied on promoting a lot of uh, those kind of matches. And, and, and I would say that all Japan definitely needed the Americans more. You know, it, it really was about being an NWA territory. Whereas New Japan, like we said uh, in the Vader episode, again, not to keep pointing back, but please check out the Vader episode. Definitely one of my favorites as well. But the New Japan style really was about a certain kind of nationalistic narrative, or if not a narrative, certainly a nationalistic tone. So, so in All Japan, they kind of needed the Americans. But in New Japan, it was like, eh, you know, we could take or leave it. But we're going to use this as a training ground. So if the Americans want to show up and want to try to compete on our level, they can. And the ones who can't compete on our level, they're going to look really bad and they're not going to be invited back. Uh, but the ones who do get over, the ones that do show that they can hang, you know, in that incredibly physical, incredibly intense environment, they're going to be made for life in the way that Vader was made for life. Or in the way, like you talk about Scott Norton, right? I mean, he didn't necessarily get that main event push in the U.S., but when his time in Japan was up or when he was starting to wind down, he could easily find a job in the U.S. because he just had so much respect from, you know, being such a tough, reliable guy in Japan. So all Japan kind of worked cooperatively uh, with the American promoters, whereas New Japan was kind of like, 
well, I guess you guys, you Americans can come here and, you know, if you can prove yourself, then we'll really talk about making you a star. And uh, part of that was the way that New Japan, and I think it's still the case today, they don't have contracts the way that WWE, not at this time necessarily, but they begin um, working more with the idea of exclusivity that Vince was in charge of who came and went to New Japan, but it was Vince who was the one that was determining a lot of things. He was the guy locking down people the way that in the way that Eric Bischoff would eventually. I think that also is how they attracted people. They weren't going to tie them down. You could kind of go back and forth as you please, but at the same time, it made it so that there's a lot of movement back and forth. And like I, I, I may have mentioned earlier, Big Ben and Dangerous only last for three months, essentially, uh, before Vader gets hurt, because that's the other thing. The style they're working is so intense that it, you see guys get hurt all the time. And I, I know Dave Meltzer likes to say, well, guys get hurt in the WWE a lot more, but those are usually like repetitive stress injuries, like messing up your shoulder because you're in the same spot every day for 300 days, which isn't any better necessarily, but it's less high impact injuries, it feels like. Well, yeah, I mean, take a look at, you know, Katsuyora Shibata, right, from uh, from New Japan, where he had that uh, that super stiff headbutt exchange and like, basically almost died backstage and stuff. You know, he did his his big comeback where he gave his little speech to the crowd and then he took a bump in the ring to kind of test himself or to show people that he was still there. And he stood up very slowly from that kind of half speed, half height bump that he took. You know, when when guys uh, mess themselves up in Japanese wrestling, it's it's generally like the head or neck, right? I mean, we saw it with Shibata. We saw it recently with Hiromu. That, that like definitely that that more physical, impactful style you're more likely to see the uh, the like the sudden trauma what, rather than the cumulative, you know, elbows or knees and tendons and things like that that we see in the U.S. I mean, also in the U.S., and I, I don't want to get down a whole rabbit hole here, in the U.S. we see more tendon and ligament and joint injuries because of the use of performance-enhancing drugs and because there's not as much a culture of PEDs in Japan. I mean, uh, Tanahashi looks pretty fucking impressive, but I don't want to draw any conclusions. Uh, but because of there's less of a culture of PEDs in Japan, I think you do see less of those minor muscle tears and fewer of those tendon injuries generally. But you do see way more traumatic injuries, like the repeated, you know, three or four headbutts in a row and, and you know, have, has a stroke, like what happened with Shibata. When you said PEDs, I thought, what a great transition to the... Uh, the person who I think is the most revelatory American wrestler in Japan, who's Hogan. Hulk Hogan is so much, he is Norton-esque in terms of you're like, holy crap. But you see what made, and I hate to say it, Hogan's such a great professional wrestler. It's this idea that he did just enough to get over everything he was doing if that makes sense like he put all of the effort he needed into each individual thing he was doing but only that amount of effort that was necessary oh definitely i mean we talked about uh in the ddt episode uh i kind of said and i was talking about jake roberts i I said you know one of the things that jake did that was really smart is that he you know he found a way to do the minimum he found a way to make people only anticipate the ddt and that became his whole act well, Hogan kind of had the reverse, right? Of, you know, he had been working uh, in the U.S. He first started work, uh, getting booked in Japan, uh, I think by Vince Sr. Uh, during his first run in the late 70s, early 80s in the WWF. But he first went there then, and then he was kind of going back and forth during his time in the AWA. And you can really clearly see that in America, he's doing the American minimum. You know what I mean? That he's doing the kind of standing up in the ring. The guy runs at you and takes a bump. You know, if, if you're the big impressive guy, you move as little as possible, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just hitting the big leg, whatever. When he went to Japan, he had to do the Japanese minimum, which, as we discussed earlier, uh, is a much more physical uh, work style with much higher expectations. So it's really interesting that he found a way to kind of make himself the same Hogan on both sides of the Pacific Ocean, even though he was basically doing a much different act or a much different ring style. His ability relative to the talent pool and the 
the craziness of the spots he was doing relative to everybody else was pretty much the same. Like he was, he was the same sort of star, but in two different languages and two different cultures and two different contexts at the same time. Yeah. And you, you understand his charisma in that, that he has a special kind of, especially for the era in which he came up a special kind of charisma that you didn't really see in anyone other than basically like a Ric Flair, where it's just, he is the center of the room in every room he walks into. That translates really well for his character at the time in Japan. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday comes again. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I think it's what got him oh, that and the actual physical gifts. He was not a bad. He's sincerely in Japan, not a bad performer at all. And in the in America, he's a good performer who, as we keep saying, did the absolute bare minimum. But he did it really well. He had a really good leg drop. He did a lot of stuff really well. But he only did five things, and I don't mean five moves of doom. I mean five things. No, definitely. And and I think if you uh, if you want to see an example of what you're talking about, I would look up that. Hogan Hansen match from, uh, was it 90 or 91 or 92? Whenever they did that super show where it was WWF, All Japan, and New Japan. And I think it was Terry Gordy was supposed to do a job for Hogan and he didn't want to. Uh, so Hogan wound up wrestling Hansen. And, you know, Hogan and Hansen had toured together in the late 70s when they were younger and had a lot of respect. And I think Hansen had already lost to Hogan at one point somewhere. So it was like a no brainer or whatever. But uh, if you want to look at a great example of what you were talking about, that kind of elevated Japanese Hogan. But something that still rings true to what we know here in the U.S. and the WWF, I would definitely check out that match between he and Hanson. It's very easy to find on the interwebs. I don't want to say where or it might go away. But if you want to see that Hogan Japanese work style where he's doing more, he's doing it harder, uh, but he's still being the super charismatic Hulk Hogan character, uh, you should really check that out. We keep talking about like them doing actual moves and look, making it look realistic. And like you said, that was Antonio Noki's style more or less it was his he if you watch the vader match that he where vader is introduced uh to anoki in terms of like you're gonna have to deal with me now uh he's he's dressed like a shoot fighter he carries himself like a shoot fighter he's not he doesn't do the Hogan thing of looking like a guy who looks like a guy that you'd put in a movie to beat somebody up. No, definitely. I mean, even in Hogan, uh, for Hogan's case, there's that, there's the perfect example of like even his finish, you know, in the U.S., he does the leg drop, which is, you know, very dramatic. This uh, incredible visual of a guy who's six, 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 seven, you know, jumping up five, six feet in the air and then coming down, you know, with his leg across the guy's throat. And that's very impressive in the context of American wrestling. But in Japan, Hogan just finished on a lariat because he's a big, strong tree trunk, six, seven motherfucker who if you ran into him hard, you would fall down and it would hurt. So like you literally see him in changing his finish or using a different finish on, the, on you know, on either side of the ocean. Uh, you can really just see his his sensitivity and his attention to detail when it comes to really understanding the difference uh, between Japanese and American psychology, which is really interesting now because it's kind of a lost art, right? I mean, the Japanese and American psychology over the last, I would say, especially five years uh, since Gato took over as the Booker of New Japan, but the American and the Japanese psychology are, are sort of slowly coming closer and closer together. Yeah, they, um, they have structured... American performers now... And we've said this over and over again. They are athletes who want to be wrestlers, not athletes who had to become wrestlers. So they're actually... Uh, Daniel Bryan worked in the New Japan Dojo. He did a lot of work. Uh, he's done a lot of work learning different styles. He actually knows how to fight in a real fight. I'm not saying he would win a real fight against a UFC performer. What I'm saying is, is that he could be at the same training camp and not look like a total idiot. And I, I think that's the difference is that there's the really famous uh, or infamous, I should say, backstage fight between Scott Steiner and Triple H, where like Triple H wanted nothing to do with Scott Steiner because Scott Steiner's a shoot 
wrestler. He was a really good collegiate wrestler. And Triple H is a really good professional wrestler. And they're two very different things. It's something you even see in uh, like a TNA versus a, a WWE. WWE in particular has a very, or it had, and it's starting to move towards, a very unrealistic fighting style. It was very much the WWE style of fighting as opposed to a way people would actually have a fight. Like the way they stood, all of that stuff was just completely, and I don't know much about fighting, but you could tell it was completely wrong. Like everything, they didn't have technically uh, good fighting skills or anything like that. It was just kind of like punch, punch, kick, kick, throw the guy into the ropes. Yeah, and I, I think you can you can kind of see the moment it really changes when Hogan gets there too. Because I mean, if you think about wrestling in you know, the 1960s and 70s. I'm not going to say that this was the case for everybody, but you would see a lot more wrestlers in kind of a crunch down, shoulders forward, fingers out extended, like a grappler or an amateur wrestler pose. But once you get to Hogan in the WWF and you really get to kind of the era of, you know, the, the real giants, I mean, all those guys are standing up as tall and straight as possible. And if you were a six, seven guy, the last thing you would do in a fight would be to stand straight up with your arms at your sides. But in the WWE, you have to do that because that's what makes you look most impressive for TV. Yeah, and, and it really didn't change for an incredibly long time until, honestly, the, the I think the change really happened with Ken Shamrock, Dan Severin, and then in particular, Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle is really the person who makes them work a different style and starts to get people actually having wrestling matches like wrestlers do. Chris Benoit also helped, but I, I think you see that transition. The person who really put it on the map in terms of the WWE fighting style is Brock Lesnar, at least to me, because he was the first of that kind of freak athlete who was a professional wrestler, even more so than Kurt Angle, because Kurt Angle had the broken neck. If he would have come without the broken neck, I think you're looking at a completely different performer who is already one of the greats of all time. And I think he's the one that Brock Lesnar is the one that really changed the way that the WWE was going to find performers and subsequently what the styles they were going to work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Brock was kind of WWE's Vader. Um, I mean, I remember when he first debuted, I stopped watching wrestling like four or five weeks into his run for like two years because all he did was come out and kill everybody. It would be like they would have, you know, Scotty Too Hottie versus Dean Malenko or whatever going on in the match or in the ring, and he would just come down and beat up both of them. And like for me, as someone who was, you know, 12 or 13 or however old I would have been at the time, like that really turned me off because he was literally breaking the narrative. Like there was this kind of wrestling world where people had matches and, you know, people in their feuds were kind of self-contained and married to each other. And he just came out and said, no, 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 gonna run roughshod over everybody. And I mean, on a certain level, uh, you can just tell how effective that was and how much that was a paradigm shift in the WWE because I mean, someone like me stopped watching because of it, because I just thought that he was, you know, running roughshod over everybody and, and taking the world hostage to the point where I was like, well, forget it. This isn't watch, worth watching anymore because Brock Lesnar is just going to run out and kill everybody. He had an interesting time in Japan. Recently, it came out that Shinsuke Nakamura cried after the match he had with Brock because he didn't think Brock cared enough. Uh, so I, I think that's also maybe why you stopped watching. But uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the effect that he had on New Japan and maybe its style? Do, do you think he played the same role in New Japan? Well, it's kind of interesting because when we think of Brock Lesnar right now in 2018, we think of Brock Lesnar as primarily an MMA fighter who, as you said, doesn't seem to especially care about pro wrestling, but does it to uh, as his primary source of income, let's say. I mean, Lesnar was actually kind of the opposite when he really, you know, came to New Japan in uh, whatever it was, like 2005, 2006, after the end of his run in the WWE and his attempts to make the Vikings. I mean, he stepped into a New Japan at that point in kind of the early aughts where they were really relying a lot on kind of MMA style fighters. MMA grew in Japan faster than it grew here in the U.S., and was, from its inception in Japan, really closely married to pro wrestling, whereas here in the U.S., uh, MMA obviously wanted its wanted to create a sense of legitimacy and therefore always really distanced itself from pro wrestling. 
But in the early aughts, New Japan was using a lot of MMA-style wrestlers, starting with Yuji Nagata, who was kind of a hybrid pro-shoot style. And then from there, going further and further in the shoot direction. I mean, at one point, they, they like Bob Sapp was their world champion at one point. And shortly thereafter, he lost one of his K1 matches. And so they literally gave the IWGP title to the guy who beat him in the kickboxing match to maintain like the legitimacy of it. So they were trying to present wrestling as, as, as kind of not as necessarily a shoot, but as, as MMA adjacent, as more of a shoot than it was in the US. And Brock kind of came in and really kind of started to break up that paradigm, actually. Like, he's one of the people who kind of helped them get away from some of that MMA style in the U.S. I mean, like you said, he, you know, he had a match with Nakamura, uh, who was kind of one of the guys who came out of that era in New Japan, who was like this blend of, you know, a, of an MMA fighter and a pro. It's funny because Brock in Japan is almost like the opposite of the way we think of him in the U.S. now. Now in the U.S., he's the MMA fighter reigning on all the fake wrestlers parades. But in, in New Japan, he was much more of a traditional Vader-style gaijin monster who was ruining the structure of this very organized, very disciplined MMA-style approach. So it's almost like he was playing the exact opposite character that he does now. He is the evolution of a guy like Vader, and you see it in the way that he's transformative in t across continents. And I, I think Nakamura has a chance to be that. But you watch Nakamura, old, not, not old Nakamura, but uh, Nakamura, like, Wrestle Kingdom 9, which was my first introduction to Nakamura. His character in Japan was a better version of his character in America. But the reason was this weird combination of him outside of the ring and inside of the ring. Like, he was allowed to be a brutal, like, just a dick, just like a a mean guy in New Japan in a way that he was just not, he is not able to do that in the U.S. In the U.S., there is this idea that if you make him tough, you have to make him not a heel. And it doesn't totally work. And I think he's fixed it. I think he's figured out, uh, he, I was talking with somebody about this, He's kind of like a heel version of, of we mentioned um, Jake Roberts, but also Stone Cold Steve Austin in terms of like, he's a troll. But the difference with Stone Cold Steve Austin was trolling Vince McMahon and Nakamura is trolling the audience. But I think in terms of, he has that level of charisma and he has that level of skill in the ring. But you see in Japan, it's a much easier sell because he can be a total goofball and not seem like he cares, and then beat the shit out of you with one foot. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what the whole setup of Japanese wrestling is, is designed to do, is to communicate the idea that all of these wrestlers are extremely tough. Any one of the wrestlers who's made it through the New Japan Dojo would be the toughest person who you have ever met. And once you've established that everybody is tough, and, you know, and that there's there, these fights have stakes then the characters can kind of just be whatever the characters are. You can get into that world of show, don't tell. And Nakamura, you know, was clearly very tough. You talked about the Wrestle Kingdom 9. I mean, there, there is a forearm exchange in that match uh, that, that still <laughs> holds up, even, even with all the forearm exchanges that have been done in both indie wrestling and New Japan over the subsequent three or four years. Like, that forearm exchange in that match holds up as one of the nastiest I have ever seen. But, yeah, it's a Kota Ibushi match. Yeah. We didn't mention he was working. Kota Ibushi is amazing in this match. Really, it check that all of the matches we've mentioned. Make sure you check out. But that one, that one's the one that got me into Nakamura hook line and sinker. Yeah, and Ibushi's never looked that good ever again. Not even either against or with Omega. I don't think Ibushi's ever looked as good, ever looked as main event, ever looked as ready as he did in that match against Nakamura. But uh, and that's the difference between Nakamura and. America and Nakamura in Japan is Nakamura was a transcendently great character in Japan. He is a very good wrestling character in America. Once you have gotten that idea over that everybody is super tough, then any kind of goofy ass character traits can fit in there. And they're just really interesting. Look at Toroyano, right? Like he is a, a guy who, who is these days considered to be a comedy wrestler and he has a really great act. But in the earlier stages of his career, like he was uh, teamed with 
Toby Makabe and that they were like the biggest, nastiest, toughest guys in the company. They were, I mean, they had that feud with the, the Dudley boys, team 3d that seemed like it went on forever and ever. Every time there was a TNA new Japan super show, but Toru Yano's comedy is grounded in this understanding that he's a really tough guy. And in the same way, Nakamura's femininity was grounded in the sense that he's a really tough guy, but in the WWE, they just can't for the life of them show rather than telling. That was that whole like the artist known as Shinsuke Nakamura when he was a babyface. Like they were trying to explain his like slightly feminine affectations and his different personality because they like had to quote unquote turn it into a character. He couldn't just be a really tough guy who's a great fighter and this is his personality. You have to explain it. And explaining someone's wrestling personality is pretty much like explaining a joke. You know what I mean? By nature, it's reductive, and it kind of takes the fun out of it. It's Shinsuke Nakamura. Let Shinsuke Nakamura be Shinsuke Nakamura. You don't have to tell me that he's like a, an artist or some sort of, you know, uh, wandering, sensitive mind or anything. It's like, let me know by watching him in the ring what kind of person he is. I think they've really kind of almost overdeveloped his character by trying to explain it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And he has kind of removed himself from that and is now the mystery about him isn't why he's like that. It's why he's doing the things the way he's doing. I think he works much better as a heel in America. And I think that's the inverse of what's happening with Juice Robinson right now in New Japan. New Japan's, uh, he's the US champion. He just won it. And he is the hottest, one of the hottest characters they've had. I mean, other outside of like Bullet Club. The, the, he is like one of the, the first guys you've really seen that the WWE completely whiffed on from the get and is absolutely incredible. And, and he, he's raising the profile of the company in the US, I think, for people who constantly criticize the uh, new Japan for not being able to develop characters and things like that. Not telling the same kind of stories WWE does. He is a good counter example to that. And I, I think um, part of that is the same reason Nakamura, uh, the, the, the situation crossing over to the other side of the idea that juice Robinson is a dude who will mess you up, but he's also is a weird guy. He's a, like a quasi hippie kind of guy. Right. Uh, we were we were joking before we uh, started recording that you know uh, when they would talk about CJ Parker, he would come out in NXT with his dreadlocks, and they would be like, "Oh yes, CJ Parker, a young superstar who uh, cares deeply about the environment." Boo. <laughs> <laughs> but like, the, 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 in some way, he was supposed to be this like evil liberal. But once again, it was like they were just trying to give too much personality to the character. It's like. You see him in New Japan, he's just being himself. He's being a super tough, you know, punch you in the face with his great working punch wrestler, who's also this like Ricky Morton 1980s style teeny bopper icon. I had heard in, you know, on podcasts and read on places online that, you know, oh, he's considered very cute uh, by the, the women in the Japanese audience. And then you actually watch one of his matches and you like, hear that when he's selling you hear the increased female reaction and he seems like he has just that like like i said like 1980s teeny bopper thing going on that really no nobody in the u.s has and i think that he's he could have never come to that in the wwe because they're so obsessed with packaging and making these very clearly defined characters but put him in the world of new japan where it's like oh he's a tough great fighter who also you know women think is cute like it just works better i don't know it's it's simpler uh which allows for more depth sometimes you know, it's, it's like the old, like, simple pictures are best axiom, right? It's like when you try to cram everything into the photograph, when you try to put so many details in something, you can often lose out on that core main idea. Uh, but when you're, when you just strip the window dressing away and you just present people as themselves with the personality that they naturally present, or, you know, with, uh, with a little getting to a certain headspace can present, then I think you're really setting people up to succeed much more broadly. Like in WWE, people can be super successful and the people who make it to the top in the WWE do so because they keep refining themselves and getting better and better at a very narrow sense of pro wrestling. Like look at John Cena, look when John Cena came up in 2002 versus look at John Cena, you know, in 07 or 08 when he was really on the top of the world versus look at John Cena now, what he's really done 
is getting better at being a WWE wrestler, saying the phrases that WWE wrestlers say, having the kind of main event matches that WWE wrestlers have. Uh, whereas on the other hand, like if you look at Juice Robinson, you know, you would almost say, I don't want to say he's devolved because that makes it sound like he's gotten worse. And that's not the case at all. But it's like he's stopped caring about the other crap that's not just wrestling and getting over. And in doing so has gotten over like a million bucks. I think it's a, I think it's a real, I don't want to say cautionary tale because it's the opposite, really. It's a, it's a potentially exciting tale for, uh, for the people in the WWE. Like, I wish they would just see that and be like, man, maybe if we just dial back on like, overwriting and, and creating so much background for all these characters. Like maybe we could actually see some improvement. And I think it's a different situation, at least for Juice Robinson, because of the way that the news and press interacts with professional wrestling in Japan. It is treated, as we alluded to earlier, um, much closer to an actual sport. Like there are press conferences. I'm all heart nuts. Heart in one broken hand, nuts in the other, motherfucker. San Francisco? Whoo! San Francisco! I'm an American. That's an American belt. It's in America. On America's birthday. You ain't an American. Can you make it? No offense, you're not an American, too. You know who needs that belt? An American. Guess what? I'm next in line. I'm going to be coming into San Francisco, red, white, and blue, sparklers shooting out of my nipples, and launching bald eagles out of my ass. That's right. And are, are those press conferences worked? Are some of them worked? Or is some of the press conference worked? Well, a lot of the journalists at the press conference are certainly real journalists from real newspapers, and they do get to ask real questions. It is like, it is basically like a baseball game, right? After the game, everybody gathers around the starter, and, you know, there's a, you know, a couple of minutes, and everybody asks some questions, and they say, oh, yeah, either I was throwing the ball real good today, or I wasn't throwing the ball so good today. Uh, so it is pretty similar to a legitimate American uh, press conference. I've heard that supposedly, like when they did some physicality, when they did the Jericho Naito one, for example, I don't think anybody in that room was 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 smartened up to the fact that there was going to be physicality. I mean, I think that. But they're smart to the business. They're just not smart to what's happening in the business on that given day. I would say that most of them are mostly smart to the business. Yes. <laughs> uh, in as much as, in as, much as uh, you know, anybody who, who writes about wrestling and has never worked in the business is smart to the business. It is similar to the way that professional uh, baseball writers understand when's the best time to interview somebody, what are the best questions to ask. Like they understand that what they're they're smart to the type of questions they have to ask to elicit certain reactions and get certain information yeah definitely they're they're you know it's like especially with baseball writers like so many of them know the quote that they want to get before they ask the question yes there was an example earlier this year where uh, it was pablo sandoval who plays for the giants and uh, he hit a huge monster home run in this game against i think it was the padres i don't even remember but he hit this big, huge, actually, I think it was the Dodgers. He hit this big home run, and uh, and after the end, but the Giants lost like eight to one or eight to two. Like his home run was their only runs. And at the end of the game, one of the pool reporters just comes up to him and says, Tell me about your home run. And he goes, It was a home run, which I think is just like a perfect example of how shitty a lot of pool reporters are, like how lazy it is. But I think in the world of wrestling, that actually works because like the wrestlers can anticipate those softball pool reporter questions and can kind of already know what the answers to those are going to be by the time they step into that meeting. So I think some of the worst aspects of pool reporting uh, actually kind of help uh, those New Japan press conferences. Tell me about blank. The only time that works is after like they've won a championship or did a really great play. Not yeah, like, tell me how it feels to X, Y, Z. Yeah, and you're like, okay, yeah, I understand. You just won a champ your first championship. I actually am interested in how you feel at that exact moment. But uh, Juice Robinson works because he exists in that space, that unique to Japan space, better than almost anybody uh, in terms of, especially in a literal sense, translating over here. There's no need for a translator. You can just see him cutting a great promo about how he broke the bone in his hand, but he can keep fighting. Like, that's a really great promo that he could kind of cut in the WWE, but it would not come off as naturalistic as it would in New Japan. And I think that's 
what we're talking about is it's a naturalistic performance that they're given. They don't do uh, gimmick matches in the way, in the traditional sense of an American gimmick match, where they build, 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 and then they do this type of gimmick match, and then they do another. They do a gimmick match that benefits the nobody, a gimmick match that benefits the heel, and then some sort of major gimmick blow-off match that benefits the babyface or is the babyface's specialty or the heel specialty. It's like very rote. They do it the same way every time. It goes back to Bruno San Martino, right? It's like uh, you do the first match and there's a DQ, usually involving a chair. You know what? You do the second match and there's a count out and then you do the third match. Like it's, it's, that formula has really been around at least since the Garden in the 60s and 70s. And, and you see that they look at these matches, these traditional styles of building feuds and go, what about that can we do better? And I think the best example over the past couple of years uh, in wrestling period, point blank, is Kenny Omega and uh, Okada. When we look back on this era of wrestling 20 years from now, those will be the matches we talk about in the way we talk about the Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat, 89 matches. I mean, that really is that classic series of two of the very best guys in the world at what they do, you know, uh, really coming together in a space where the promoters have basically gotten out of the way and just told them, like, we know you guys are the best and you're the best at what you do. Just go out there and do it. And and it's really interesting because, like, Okada and Omega are really similar to Steamboat and Flair in some, like, important ways. Like, Okada, all he does is sell and sell and sell and attempt comebacks. Like, I can't think of a wrestler, maybe Bailey, but other than Bailey. I can't think of a wrestler other than Kazuchika Okada, who is so much like Ricky Steamboat, where it's just like the, they just get beating up, beaten up, beaten up. Every Okada match, there's that moment where he's laying across the rope, the bottom rope, and his head is back. His, the back of his head is against his shoulders, and his eyes are like half rolled back, like he's about to die, like he can't possibly make it any further. And then he digs down and wrestles for another 15 minutes. Like he's very, very Steamboat-esque. And all it does is it, it just makes his opponents look super strong. Like everybody takes Okada to the limit uh, or when he was champion, that's how it was. It was like, everybody took him to the limit, but you know, he was that, uh, he was that McLaren that could actually throw it into eighth. Whereas everybody else only had six gears. You know what I mean? Yeah. He is a remarkable athlete for somebody his size. Uh, we talked about Vader and we talked about Brock. He, he has some moves that are legitimately incredible. Like his dropkick is the most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen in wrestling, period. Yeah, you talked to earlier about the uh, about Wrestle Kingdom 9, and there's that amazing shot of Wrestle Kingdom 9 where he hits the Rainmaker pose in the middle of the ring, and they do the thing where the camera zooms all the way out to show the whole arena, and then he hits a dropkick. And uh, if you if you watch the American broadcast, uh, Jim Ross says, there it is, the greatest dropkick in the world, whatever. But it's like, it's maybe the best spot that I've ever seen, like as you approach the climax of a long main event. And it's a freaking dropkick in the middle of the ring. He reminds me a lot of, I guess this isn't a coincidence, uh, Randy Orton. He has that special level of talent where you're just like, oh, you were born to be a professional wrestler. I know JBL used to say, if you were building a sports entertainer from the ground up, you'd build Randy Orton. It's totally true. Randy Orton is the only guy I think that is close to the level of Okada in terms of just natural ability to go with an unbelievable look, like a mind-blowing look, and real talent, like as a, a physical talent, the look of the character, and just the pro wrestling of them. Yeah, and I think especially like I even about talking about appearances, like when Okada comes down to the ring and he's got his like gold and purple outfits and stuff with like all the sequencing. He is the most incredible looking pro wrestler. I know that I said that he was like Ricky Steamboat a minute ago, but it's like those robes are are almost kind of flair esque. Like when he comes down the ramp, whether it's at you know. Uh, whether it's at a house show in Rapongi or whether it's walking down the two mile long Tokyo Dome ramp, like you see Okada and the second Okada steps into view, you're like, there's the most important guy in the company. He really has that even more so than, you know, they still technically call Tanahashi the ace of New Japan and stuff because it was the gimmick for so long and because he carried them through such a big dry spell and stuff. But I mean, I really think that Okada is that guy where like, they could they could lose Omega. Omega could sign with the WWE tomorrow. You know what I mean? And and, and 
as long as they had Kazuchika Okada, they could either just put the mantle back on Okada or have Okada make the next guy because he's just so good. Nobody in the world is better at that long main event style, that 40 plus minute match than Kazuchika Okada. Yeah, he would be the biggest get in the history of the WWE. He would be the biggest free agent signing. I think the only guy close, again, is Angle. Angle really changed the trajectory, as far as I'm concerned, of the WWF in ways we don't realize. In terms of just signing somebody that anybody had a chance to, like let's say that Okada was released from his contract in New Japan for whatever the situation is, he became a free agent. If the WWE got him, that would shift the... They would basically become like an unbeatable god machine in a way that they they aren't quite yet and it's incredible because he's 30 and he's already one of the 20 best 25 best wrestlers of all time and in new japan he's probably a top five top 10 guy and again he's 30 he has another 15 years of doing this level of shit yeah i mean i think that he's definitely the to this point, if you unless you count his run as Okado in TNA, uh, unless you count his kind of botched excursion, I, I would say that he's possibly the best wrestler never to appear at the top on the top level in the U.S. I am uh, excited to see what's what's in store for, as you say, the the second half or better of his career. I mean, he's he's really someone where if you don't love the WWE in-ring style, and you you're, you aren't sure what you're looking for, I strongly recommend that you that you check out Kazuchika Okada matches. Definitely. He's the best wrestler in the world as far as I'm concerned. The only real competition for him is Kenny Omega, who has... I'm not the biggest Kenny Omega fan, but he has really developed... Or I wasn't, I should say. He has really developed himself into the... what What is his nickname? The... Uh, the best bout machine. He basically is this era's flair. Like I was comparing this feud to, you know, flair steamboat. And I said, you know, Okada's like steamboat because he does the big long sell, but it's like Omega is very, very much flair in that, you know, he has a very tight repertoire of the things Kenny Omega does, you know, whether it's the knees, uh, whether it's the snapdragon suplexes, you know, he doesn't do a whole ton of stuff in the same way that Ric Flair didn't do a whole ton of stuff. And when you saw a Ric Flair main event, you were seeing all the different ways he arranged the Ric Flair stuff to, you know, uh, emphasize his opponent. And I think Omega is great in much the same way, that he really knows how to put the pieces together in a unique way that tells a story that's, you know, different every single time. He, he really is that, like you were saying, you know, he really is that main event machine and that, you know, he can go out there and have a match with everybody or anybody. And it's not because he does so much and he can wrestle rings around them. I mean, he can wrestle rings around most people, but it's not the act of wrestling rings around people that makes him so amazing. It's his ability to take just a few things that he does so much better than everybody else and build a whole repertoire around that. He reminds me a lot of the difference between... Nadal and Federer where like Federer had every shot as every shot you could possibly ever want in the history of tennis and Nadal has if you were to list their top 20 shots Nadal has the best seven out of the top 20 and then Federer those are the only seven shots he has but he is the best in the world at all of them and I, I think that's also very Kenny Omega like that style and and flair those guys where they just did these certain individual things in a way that built and complemented themselves to create this like just great performer oh yeah definitely and you know who else really reminds me of uh roger federer and rafael nadal who would that be the following announcement has been paid for by the new world order mark masick and dylan roth Mark and Dylan are still repping it hard over there at Patreon, both of them at the $2 level. They got their sexy wizard shoutouts last week, but I want to just sprinkle a little more sugar on them and tell them how much we love them and how much we might love you too if you give us some of that skrill. Bring it over to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W, as in the initials of the name of this show, and check it out. You can donate at the $1 or $2 monthly level. That's really what we're looking for, what we're hoping for, what we're encouraging, just to help us cover production costs. If we got another 5, 10 people in in that range, we'd like be knocking our expenses in half. It would be off the chisarts, as Bruce Pritchard always says. 
So if you have interest in helping the show out, helping us pay some bills, helping us bring you more and more content, both these fantastic podcasts and these so sexy videos that Nick has begun posting, uh, you can join up on Patreon and throw a few shekels our way, and you can feel good about it, too. I mean, you can feel like you're a real patron of the art, because nobody's dreaming dreams and thinking thoughts as big as the ones you're going to hear here on how wrestling explains the world. If you want to be part of something special, if you want to feel like you're throwing your money somewhere where it's really making a difference and really stimulating dialogue and really helping someone pay posting bills, make sure that you sign up at that one or two dollar level. Of course, if you're a big shot, if you just won that big scratch card, you know, if you just uh, came into a little money, maybe grandma died, I don't know. But, you know, if you won that scratch card or if your grandma died and you're looking to do something really good, maybe something in memory of grandma, uh, you could give us, you know, 25 bucks and you could uh, give us a topic to write about, for example. That's something that I think Nick and I would both love to start doing on a regular basis would be to be writing some uh, exclusive columns at Juice Make Sugar for our wonderful patrons. So... As always, make sure you check out patreon.com slash HWETW. See if you can uh, see if you can find it in your heart to donate one to two dollars a month. Or you can give us however much money you want. I've never turned it down and I probably never will unless stuff gets real sleazy. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Like you said, it's the kind of feud that's going to stand the test of time. Though I think... At the at that same time, you do understand why it's not that style will never be as big as far as I can tell in the United States as it will be in Japan. In terms of, I think that the thing that the WWE does extraordinarily well, though it sometimes ends up hurting them, is the idea of being a bunch of different things to a bunch of different people. I think that there is, because everyone is tough on the show, it's not going to appeal to Americans the way that we're used to. This is something we've talked about in episode after episode after episode. Bad guys in America aren't tough. They're weak-willed or weak-hearted or just weak. And that's something that will not likely change for a decent period of time. I don't know if it'll ever change. And I think right now we have been so normalized to the way that WWE tells stories. This Disneyfication of the wrestling world is something that will make legitimate inroads to usurping WWE's market share as opposed to overlapping it be very unlikely to happen in the same way that like Fox could do incredible movies of the X-Men movies. They could have done incredible X-Men movies. They were never going to surpass the Marvel movie universe because that has become our idea of what a superhero movie is supposed to be. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I don't think new Japan's goal is, is necessarily to like conquer America or anything like that. Like, I think that, they are content to, to be the industry leader in Japan and also have an American fan base who sends them money through the internet. You know what I mean? Like I don't And when they come to America, that MSG show I believe they're doing with ROH is going to sell out. It, it because people want to see New Japan and they haven't been overexposed. So there's this idea, it's not exotic, but it's or or like a secret, but it's also one of those things where you really like a band that never plays in your hometown except it's a globally recognized, globally recognizes the best wrestling company in the world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think a great example of that was the Minoru Suzuki-Matt Riddle match at uh, Matt Riddle's Bloodsport, which happened over uh, WrestleMania weekend, where it was like, I think Suzuki was a substitute. I'm not sure who, uh, who Matt Riddle was originally supposed to be wrestling in that match. But it was like, Suzuki came out as a substitute and got one of the biggest pops of WrestleMania weekend. Like, American fans are super hungry to see those New Japan stars and particularly are super hungry to see them side by side or to see them across the ring from, you know, American acts who they see as similar to that person. So I think when you when you get 
those top tier New Japan guys against the top tier ROH guys in the most important wrestling arena in the world historically, I definitely think that that show is going to sell out easy. Yeah, and and deservedly so. They're going to put on a good show. If you watch any of the Wrestle Kingdoms, you watch any of the G1, they are largely considered the... I think it's almost unanimous amongst critics that... I mean, critic depends on how you define critics, but New Japan has the highest ceiling out of any wrestling company in the world. I think they te- they can both tell stories that are American style, like punch kick and get away with it. And they can do the very Japanese style of a 60 minute, two out of three falls match that, that used to be an American style, but has been transferred over to the more naturalistic, less gimmicky, even the gimmicky matches aren't particularly gimmicky style of New Japan. You know, one thing I will say here is that uh, I always wind up kind of half putting this company over on this show. I don't know why they don't pay me any money, although they're certainly welcome to become patrons at www.patreon.com forward slash how wrestling explains the world or HWETW rather. But uh, MLW is a company where I think they do a great job kind of hybridizing that WWE story and character based style and that Japanese kind of fighting based style. Because I mean, like they did uh, a recent angle with uh, Shane Strickland and Loki, where, you know, Shane Strickland has been feuding with Selena De Laurenta, the top manager, who, uh, by the way, we, we have to talk about her in long form at some point. She is like 20 or 21 years old, and she's a model, and she is the most confident performer on televised wrestling right now. She is incredible. My MVP of 2018 in terms of American wrestling is probably Selena De Laurenta. But anyway... Uh, uh, So, you know, uh, Strickland was feuding with her and she had a bounty on his head because he had caused Pentagon to accidentally spit mist in her face and mess up her white blouse. It was, you know, very kind of 70s or early 80s pro wrestling. But then they did this great thing with Loki where, you know, she has this bounty and a couple of guys try to accept the bounty to try to beat Strickland and they can't. And then Loki, who does this like Hitman gimmick, like based on the video game Hitman, uh, he like comes up to her backstage and he's saying, well, you're messing around with all these bounty hunters who are just trying to make a quick buck. What you really need is a professional. And, you know, if you, uh, if you, instead of 10 grand, make it 50 grand, well, then it would be interesting to me. And so then Loki, the kind of hired professional assassin goes out and beats Strickland cleanly in the middle of the ring in a very, very tough, very, very physical back and forth match. And I think that's a great example of, taking that kind of American almost reaching back to the 80s storyline of like the manager is mad that she was embarrassed. So she's looking for someone to beat up the baby face champion, but using the kind of skill set of super physical Japanese wrestling to tell that story in a way where it's not cartoonish. Like it's not the repo man stealing macho man's hat. You know what I mean? They take something that should be a little bit ridiculous and they make it very personal through physicality. So yeah, if you haven't seen it yet, I, I really strongly recommend checking out that episode of MLW that, uh, that had both the Strickland key title match and also had the uh, Jimmy Havoc versus Filthy Tom Waller match, which again combines kind of uh, 90s style American hardcore wrestling with that kind of Japanese MMA based realistic fighting. So, so if you're kind of intrigued by this conversation we've been having and, 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 and finding this balancing point between American and Japanese styles, I really recommend you check out MLW, especially that particular episode. Yeah. They get a lot of love from a lot of different places I've gone and seen. I, I, I will, I might start che- checking out MLW. You may have just won me over. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, I think uh, we can end uh, after, with the plug for MLW uh, because I, speaking of recommendations, if you wanted to show someone a New Japan match that explained to them why New Japan was worth their time and their $8.72 or whatever the exchange rate for 999 yen is. Yeah, I mean, I would generally recommend Omega Okada for all the reasons we talked about before. And I guess if I had to zero in on a particular match, I would say the uh, Wrestle Kingdom 11 match that happened on January 4th earlier this year uh, between the two of them. It was a fantastic match on just a fantastic show that I think people should generally watch, although you can definitely skip some of the junior heavyweight and junior tag stuff in the first hour, as kind of usual with the New Japan big shows, which I know is like total sacrilege to say. I, I apologize to everybody that I don't care about the junior tags, uh, but I don't. 
But uh, but I would really check out that Wrestle Kingdom 11 match because, you know, uh, Shawn Michaels and Undertaker had a thousand good matches, but, like, I would probably recommend the WrestleMania ones to you, you know, because they're at the highest stage. They're going to be... They're going to be at their peak of thingness for that match. So, so Wrestle Kingdom 11 in particular, Omega Okada would be my recommendation. As I mentioned earlier, I love the New Japan version of Scott Norton. And I would take my time, if I were you, and check out any Vader-Scott Norton match on the... I think there's just one. Um, it's really awesome to see someone like Scott Norton being able to work in a match that he actually gives a shit about against an opponent he actually is fighting up to as opposed to having to with like kid gloves work with guys in wcw he was allowed to actually work a match at his skill level like i mentioned with hogan it is revelatory to watch scott norton wrestle in new japan in a way that will make you very angry he wasn't like the enforcer for the w for wcw or the enforcer for the NWO as opposed to literally anyone else. He's a perfect enforcer character and they just didn't use him in the way that he should have been used. It is Dustin Rhodes-esque for me watching him in WCW and just being like, what is wrong with you? Why are you not doing more with this guy? <laughs> no, definitely. I think that's an awesome recommendation. Another one that I just thought of as you were talking about Scott Norton uh, that I'll briefly say is uh, the Minoru Suzuki-AJ Styles match from the 2014 G1. Um, I think is one that people should should really watch. I mean, it's arguably one of the matches that kind of helped AJ Styles get his job in the WWE. Um, and it's an incredible contrast between Minoru Suzuki, who is a legit shooter, like I always say, like one of the best things you can do with your afternoon is type Mizor Minoru Suzuki Pancrase into uh, YouTube. But it's a great, great match and then it's a blend of someone who's like a high-flying, fast-paced American and someone who's a very, very kind of grounded tough guy shooter in Suzuki. So so another one I would recommend would be Styles and Suzuki from that 2014 G1. I just had to get a Minoru Suzuki match in there. <laughs> totally understandable. Or else he might break through the computer and, and choke me out. Now that we have our recommendations, it is time for plugs. Do you have any good ones this week or, or just your Twitter, Dave? No, just little old me. Nothing good to recommend to people. Just follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk, I guess. And you can check me out at the Nixer. That's T H E N one C K S T E R. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com, or you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Store, and Spotify. I got it on the first try. I'm so proud of myself. Um, I'm also proud. I actually know I don't have the ability to feel pride, but I don't hate the video series that we debuted just this week. Uh, the first episode we put up was from one of my, is my personal favorite episode, which is the nature documentaries episode. I put up an excerpt of a conversation we had about the role of fabulists in the history of both nature documentaries and obviously wrestling. We are coming out with a new episode that's going to premiere at the same time that this podcast goes out on Monday morning. And then going forward, a new episode of both the podcast, obviously, and the video series. And uh, new episodes will appear on the YouTube every other week for the for the uh, How Wrestling Explains the World episodes. And for these episodes, the How Blank Explains Wrestling episodes, we will be uploading to the Patreon, an a Patreon-exclusive video for our $2 Patreons of previous episodes and it is time for the most exciting part of every episode for me which is announcing next week's topic it's gonna be a weird one uh but i think it's gonna be a really good one it's we're gonna get into some out there shit uh because we are doing paul thomas anderson and specifically his films i'm not going to be doing like a biography of paul thomas anderson but uh we will be looking at his, the the different roles his film plays in telling the story, a, a very pro wrestling story, having watched a bunch of them in preparation for the episode uh, over again. Uh, there is a lot of parallels. I, I was kind of shocked that we were trying to think of an episode to pair with this New Japan episode. And we uh, once I said to Dave, oh, Paul Thomas Anderson, we were both like, oh, that's perfect. Right, Dave? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, he, his movies are definitely larger than life and reality bending in in a way that, that really is kind of analogous uh, to wrestling. Definitely. I, I'm, I'm intrigued to explore that connection with you together next week. I am, however, hoping that you will splice in, you know, the famous New Japan match between uh, Prince Devitt and Kenta where it rained frogs.
Mercy, mercy, from uh, Tokyo to uh, 